Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, great. I'm not really prepared this week, so we're going to see what happens. There's just been so much going on this week, and then I have this, and then I have the affirmation. What is it called? Oh, yeah, your panel is tomorrow. Yes, the panel is tomorrow. Does the panel have a title? I don't know. It's some queer theology something panel, right? Okay. And I have to... Will it be recorded? I think it will be recorded. I'm not sure. And the thing is, I actually have to put some work into this because I'm given 10 minutes. And the shorter I have to speak, the more work I have to put into it, right? (laughs) So... Yeah. Because it's a matter of like selecting and prioritizing and structuring it and making sure you have the most impact and so on. Speaking of this, if, if today is Monday... September the 20th when you are listening tonight it is the final session of our queer theology book club where Blair Ostler themselves will be coming and talking with us so if you're listening to this on Monday then then uh, check out our Facebook page for the link to the thing hmm that's great at some point we'll need to have them back on to like talk about the reception of the book and everything, right. especially now that right. the book club is ending. Because, right. um, yeah, impactful piece of writing, but also just, you know, we, we'd already talked about mm-hmm. having them mm-hmm. back on once we, after we had our first conversation. There was so much stuff we didn't get to. Right, exactly. And this is an introduction. It is a foundation to the, co- the future contributions of queer thinkers in the church. So I'm very excited mm. as to where that conversation goes and where I will be plugging into it. And, mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, that'll. I, I'm excited to see uh, where you'll be plugging into it as well, Derek. Because uh, you know, I, it didn't occur to me until I think it was a it was a lease that uh, called me this week just to see how things were going on at school. But we also talked about like what the future of our shows was going to be like. Uh, you know, after Come Follow Me ends, because we don't know what the curriculum is going to be afterward. And, you know, mm-hmm. as as great as the podcast is, I don't know, you know, what it's going to look like in the future, you know, if it is around at all. And even if it's not, it's not like we won't be around or that, you know, even the brand Beyond the Block won't be around. It's not like we won't still be producing content. Right. Yeah. Uh, we may not have a podcast per se, but, you know, we'll still be doing things. So we'll I'm still going be doing to be. Things, yeah. Right. So I'm excited to see what uh, you in particular are going to be doing. You already know what I want to see you doing. But uh, what, you want me to write I, a book? I, well, I want you to write a book. I also want you to have some online courses. Like that's, uh, that's another thing I want to see you doing because, you know, you always joke about wanting to assemble these 10-hour videos. But at the same time, I'm just like, well, Derek, that actually lends itself really well to some online courses. And I'm sure people would be lining up to get in on those things. And, uh, like, I mean, I would be there, and I get to talk to you every week, so. Yeah, well, are you going to be there tomorrow for our panel? What time is the panel? I think it's 1 o'clock Eastern time. That's actually perfect. That's right before, because it looks like I'll be joining the Harlem Ward out here, uh, the first ward, and... um, they're having a little cookout, I think, tomorrow in Morningside Park. So that'll be right before then. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it'll be perfect. Hey, are, are there a lot to... of people of color in that ward? <sighs> um, no, there are not. Um, and I'm going to talk about this uh, later. Not later today, but just later in general, particularly 
uh, when we get to a conversation on official declaration two come mm-hmm. December. Mm-hmm. But l- let me just tell you, Derek, I-, I be I got here to Harlem, so excited to walk through my black as hell neighborhood. Like, let uh-huh. me tell you about Harlem. Uh-huh. I'm not in the gen- I'm not in the gentrified section of Harlem. Like, I, I basically when I walk to church over here. Mm-hmm. It's about a 20 minute walk or so, but trying to find a non black person is like playing Where's Waldo. You know what I'm saying? Like, Harlem is black. It's blackity black. Blackity black, but black, black, y'all. Right. It's very black. But, you know, I get into, I walk into the church, uh, you know, on 125th and Adam Clayton Powell, and it's uh, in the heart of Harlem. And. I look on the stand, there ain't no black people mm. on the stand. And like at most, at most, about 30% of the congregation is black. So I'm just like, what is going on over here? Like I know Harlem got gentrified to an extent, but what is happening here? Like what is going on that even the Harlem war does not look like its neighborhood? It was just it was strange. And, you know, granted, I feel I did feel better walking into a ward where there were significantly more black people than in, you know, m- most wards mm-hmm, I've been mm-hmm. to in my adult life. But at the same time, I'm just like, this doesn't look like Harlem and it should look like Harlem. And what are we going to do to get it to look like Harlem, especially, you know, this leadership? Like, why is this leadership not look like Harlem? Um, if anything, there should be a token white dude there, but not right. like all of them. So... Anyway, this is just all a really long way to answer your question. No, there's not a lot of black people. And, um, you know, that's not an accident. That's a conversation I'm going to want to have uh, come December. Just, you know, talking about how, like, even in this black, black neighborhood, it is still mostly white. And that is not an accident. And uh, what I really want to do, not just there, but all over the church, is talk about why that is. And how we got here very much on purpose. So, right. anyway. You know, let me just say two things about that. Yes, sir. Number one is, yes, I remember texting you earlier in the week asking if you had thoughts about how I can help make the church less white. Yes. And I think that is a priority. And I like framing it as making the church less white rather than, oh, how can mm-hmm. we be inclusive? Because... right. It's about repenting of whiteness. And whiteness, for all right. of you li- listeners, isn't the status of being white. It is the entire engine of white supremacy and white mm-hmm. culture and white predominance and white everything that in- infests everything, right? Yeah, man. A lot of work to do. And uh, it was just another one of those wake-up calls where I just had to be like, okay, at the end of the day, this is still, you know, this is still what the church is. And, um, you know, thankfully, most of the ward is cool, at least the people that I met. I met, uh, I got to meet uh, Archie and Kim Egbert, uh, fans of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So it was very mm-hmm. great meeting y'all. You guys are going to be hearing this after the next time we see each other. But, you know, thank you guys for being so cool and welcoming it, me into uh, the ward, making me feel welcome anyway. It's been exciting, Derek, just getting to go to wards all over this country. I don't think, at least in the last year that we've been doing this show, I don't think there's been a single ward that I've visited where there hasn't been somebody who has known the show. Mm. And that has just been super validating to me, just knowing that, like, we didn't prom- we didn't super promote this show when we first started. You know what I'm saying? Right. We, we're basically, 
like people basically know us off the muscle, off a of word of mouth. And it's just really cool to see just how people are, they value the podcast enough to share it with other people mm. to the point where mm. no matter where I've gone in this country over the last year, somebody has known of it or somebody has been positively affected by it. So thank you guys for sharing the show. It's that, that really means a lot to us. Definitely keep sharing it to people who you think could benefit from it. The, the idea that I had is like in terms of making the church less white, like I can't change the color of my skin, but what I can right. do is change my thinking and make sure that my thinking is less white. Yeah. And I think yeah. James Cone would be on board with that because he said, yeah, white people are white, but they can start doing black thinking and black theology and black, and right. at least on the road to conceiving of God as black and worshiping a mm -hmm. black God. And just there, there's way, obviously it's not going to be the same, but I think we can make progress towards de whiting de-whitening, mm -hmm. unwhitening. I don't know. Whatever this is. <laughs> and unwhitening. <laughs> right, and unwhitening. Um, and I think okay. a similar thing needs to do. Like, our thinking is so straight in the church. You know how straight mm -hmm. our thinking is in the church among the leaders? Straight. When you say straight, are you talking about? I'm talking about the anti, the opposite of homo. Okay, just making sure. I yeah. just didn't want to make, okay. Yeah, yeah go on. So, there, I don't know how true this is, but there's a rumor that many local area authorities in Utah actually are teaching this conspiracy theory that says, get this, it says, uh, their, their response to like, what about all these gay people who are actually gay? Here's what their response is. They view gay men as being possessed by the spirits of female demons. And it's the female demon inside of me that's attracted to men. So what? the, like, okay, how messed up is that to say that I'm demon possessed by a, a female spirit? But the second thing is <laughs> they literally are so straight in their thinking that the only way that they can process m my orientation is to process it on straight terms and to basically turn mm -hmm. me into, well, isn't that messed up that they can't even conceive of gay as gay? They have to somehow twist it and under in an underlying way, it actually is straight because they can't think outside the straight box. Right, you have to be possessed by a woman in order to be quote unquote gay. Like that's just, wow. I've never heard this before. Yeah, now I've heard this as a rumor. I don't know how true it is, but you can you can bet that given the way our conspiracy-minded thinking is uh, going in the church and how people come up with these wacky things and then someone says it and it catches on and you've got all these uh, weird things that bloom like dandelions just because we don't have good theologians in the church who can't uh -huh. ha think for half a second think through the implications of what they're saying and then you get all of this um all these amateur uh, apologists coming up with weird justifications for things and that really messes up our theology so we should probably yeah. start talking about dnc uh we're going through sections 106 through 108 okay 
Sounds good. Before we get there, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, like you said, sections 106 to 107. 106 and 108 are revelations given to uh, Warren A. Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery's older brother, and uh, Lyman Sherman, uh, respectively. Uh, Basically, these are personalized revelations of the Lord telling them what their duty in the church is. Uh, There are certainly some things in there uh, worth exploring. If we get time, uh, we can definitely explore those, but it looks like most of what where we want to spend our time today is going to be in section 107, which is basically about 100 verses, I think. So why don't we go ahead, if it's all the same to you, Derek, dive in there first and uh, start talking about it, unless you got mm-hmm. any things you want to a- address in uh, 106 and 108. No, I don't have first. anything. Uh, I might have just something about one verse in, in 108. All righty. Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. Okay, sounds good. So... I looked at verses 7 and 8, and it says, Therefore strengthen your brethren in all your conversation, in all your prayers, in all your exhortations, and in all your doings. And behold, and lo, I am with you to bless, to bless you and deliver you forever. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that just struck out at me. I don't have a lot of commentary on it other than to realize, yeah, we're all in this together. We need to strengthen mm-hmm. brethren, um, and obviously we should make that gender neutral. We should s- strengthen right. all of our siblings in the church, and especially the leaders. We should strengthen them and help them uh, help bear their burdens. Like they can't do everything mm-hmm. by themselves, and we can't wait for right. them to spoon and feed everything us for us. Right, and we need to to strengthen them, and we need to take some initiative in engaging with and supporting the needs of the brethren, right? They've, mm-hmm. They're under a lot of pressure, and I, I, as much as we have critiques for the effects of what happens uh, with their words and actions, they need our prayers, and they need, uh, they need our, our sustaining energy. Did you see this meme that was circulating on Mormon social media a little bit ago? Um, I mean, I think this may have been today, or sometime this week. But basically, it was this graphic of uh, President Nelson with the caption, Our beloved prophet is bearing all of our burdens at this troubled time. Please pray for him. And I just remember thinking to myself, "Um, this dude ain't Jesus. Like, what is, like, this idea that they are bearing all of our burdens is just, first of all, an unhealthy way to look at what their responsibilities are. Like, it's true, they have some pretty heavy responsibilities as, um, you know, leaders of the church, but at the same time, there's two problems I got with that. One, it deifies the brethren, and the other thing is something you just said. We expect way too much of these brethren. We outsource, you know, probably more than our spiritual well-being to them, and that's just not healthy. And it's also just not I mean, not to get too union here, but it's not a good way to step into the self-actualization that is expected of us as, uh, you know, disciples of Christ, as human beings. So, like, I don't know, man. It just was weird for me to see such a, 
obviously flawed characterization of who the brethren are be circulating on social media. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people already calling it out already. Like, that's how I saw it in the first place. But even still, just that something like that got any kind of traction really got to me. Yeah, it's interesting culturally, because I didn't grow up in the church, how you get all this Uh cutesy affection for leaders. Notice I didn't say love. I absolutely think we should love in the New Testament sense our leaders. Right. But we right. shouldn't have this cutesified uh, superficial thing that that I see a lot in the church. And the part of the problem is President Nelson isn't bearing our burdens and mm-hmm. it uh at least speaking as a queer person like maybe someone with privilege can and like what are what are the burdens they have like they couldn't find their keys and somehow Nelson <laughs> helps them feel better about that right like what is going on with with yeah maybe that's something president Nelson can bear and and maybe he's bearing some of the covid stuff right certainly but like he has not lifted a finger to help queer people not only has he not helped us but he has harmed us Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. in numerous ways, um, before right. he became the president of the church and afterward, President Nelson is not bearing our burdens. He's not fulfilling his baptismal vow, um, which is also in uh, Galatians chapter six. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that I think ties into some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in one oh seven. Certainly, certainly. Are we ready to go there? Are we good? Uh, is there anything else in 108? Yeah, I think that's it for me. All right, let's go ahead and move to 107. A lot of this is uh, one of the things that we designate, if not the main thing that we designate as the uh, revelation on the priesthood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, quite lengthy and it's mostly an administrative uh, definition of what the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods are and what the responsibilities or res- yeah, what the responsibilities of all the offices are. Um, that is pretty much the first half of this. And uh, then there's just more, I, I mean, I guess most of this is talking about the responsibilities with a little bit of counsel and doctrine in there. And also some things that we can uh, use in terms of how we operate in leadership and how we can interact with leadership as well and what we can expect of them. Is there any thing in the section that you want to use as a jump off point for that discussion, Derek? Right. I want to look at section uh, verses 81 through 84. All right. And I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't know how often these verses are quoted. I don't think I've heard anyone quote these verses except for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't see them quoted in, in, in publications, in conference talks, in uh-huh. In local sacrament talks, like I've never heard anyone ever quote these verses. I just read them. Like this is literally one of the few highlights that I have in this section. Yeah. So, so, so verse starting with verse eighty-one, there is not any person belonging to the church who is exempt from this council of the church. And the, the previous verses are talking about the. Um, the common council of the church, the the establishment of the of this uh, body that can try cases, uh-huh. and there's no one that's exempt from the judicial authority of this council. And so, verse eighty two, 
and inasmuch as a president of the high priesthood shall transgress, he shall be had in remembrance before the common council of the church, who shall be assisted by twelve counselors of the high priesthood, and their decision on, upon his head shall be an end of controversy concerning him. Thus, none shall be exempted from the justice and the laws of God, that all things may be done in order and solemnity before him, according to truth and righteousness. Now, there's like so much in here that I could talk for two mm -hmm. hours on these. Ver uh, well, <laughs> I, I could probably talk for four hours on these because it connects mm -hmm. with, first of all, the justice and the laws of God. We've got accountability here. We've got some external reference according to which we can judge the highest officers of the church. The justice and the laws of God, which assumes that we have independent access to the justice of God and the laws of God. And we should know we all have God's spirit. We all have the scriptures. We all are on a covenant path to being celestial adults with responsibility. And short-circuiting mm -hmm. that process is is problematic. But anyway, so... Short-circuiting, sorry. Short-circuiting short the process of us getting our own testimony, of us... Um, uh, establishing for ourselves what if the what the leaders are saying is right. I mean, people from um, the Berean, Bereans in Acts seventeen to Brigham Young saying, you know, this this church is going to be a mess if they start to just parrot what we're doing without getting it. Uh, without, I don't even know how it goes, but you know the quote. Uh, he has several quotes like that. Yeah, I use them ironically quite a bit. And so now I don't even have, see, I didn't prepare, so I don't have the exact names and dates in front of me. But from what I can tell, if, if I remember correctly, this common council of the church has literally tried members of the first presidency, I think, three times. Mm. I think three times, including the president of the church is accountable to this common council of the church. And I, that happened in... Um, with Joseph Smith, he was acquitted. Mm. I think it was in the late 1830s, and um, and he was acquitted. Then in 1844, with the succession controversy, Rigdon was a member of the pre first presidency, and he was tried and and excommunicated by. So my point is, even members of the first presidency can be apostate and are mm. subject to some type of checks and balances. Yeah, you're a prophet, but let's look at the record of prophets in the Bible, amen? <laughs> they, they messed up. They messed up big time. Yeah. Big yeah. time, right? And they mess up big time today. And that's why there's checks mm -hmm. and balances. Once Joseph Smith was tried in 1834 and acquitted, and then in 1844, uh, Sidney Rigdon was excommunicated. So that's been the, the two times first members of the first presidency have stood trial given these provisions mm -hmm. in section 107. Now we've had uh, we've had members of the first presidency excommunicated, just like right here. We've had members of the 70 excommunicated. I think the most recent one was 2017. We've had members of the 12 excommunicated, like half the original 12 uh, mm -hmm. were, were either excommunicated or left the church. And the most recent one I think was... Um, Elder Lyman in in the eighteen uh, in the nineteen forties. I can't remember the exact year, uh, but that's our most recent apostle. 
to be excommunicated. These are not above the law. They're not above mm-hmm. apostasy. They're not above teaching wrong things. I mean, we've got this halo in the, and it's an artificial halo. We didn't have this halo in the 19th century or up into the mid 20th century. I think it's only in the past 20, 30, 40 years that somehow we've got this sugar-coated halo that gets pasted on these people like they're superheroes. They're not superheroes. They're they're just us. Like hmm. if some for some reason I become a general authority, is I'm gonna be me. Right, I'm still going to be me. It's going to be all the good and all the bad of me is going to be there. Like, right. Uh, so anyway, let me. Oh, I got to figure out how to abbreviate. I need to learn how to abbreve. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so let me just quote from this address of 1907, and this is to me the most important document that the church produced in. I think the entire 20th century. I can't think of one that I like better. But this is from 1907. It is an, a, a, an official statement by the church. It was uh, f- uh, signed by the first presidency at the time. Joseph F. Smith was the president of the church. John Winder and uh, Anthon Lund, the counselors. And this document was adopted by the vote of the church in general conference april 5th 1907 this is an official statement by the highest body of the church uh both the first presidency and the uh what ends up being the highest body of the church is us we are the church the um the mm-hmm. common consent of the entire church so let me just give a real quick background 1907, this is shortly after the Reed Smoot business. This is shortly after polygamy. This is shortly after the um, the statehood of the state of Utah. So there's a whole bunch of mess with the rest of the United States mistrusting, misrepresenting the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, saying, well, they're not really Christians. They're not really Americans. They're, they're, um, their leaders are controlling the people. They don't value education. They don't value independent thought. All of these things that um, now, sadly, are kind of coming true. If you look at the anti-intellectualism in the church and the hero prophet worship in the church, a lot of Bro, these critiques. Right? What? I was just agreeing with you. Well, to me, it looks like people are acting as the, even within the church. People are acting as though uh, these these criticisms in 1907 are now actually appear to be true. Like they're not in our sources and it's not supposed to be that way, but we have anti-intellectualism in the church and we have hero worship in the church culturally. But anyway, so let me just say, uh, so it's in within this context, like whether or not um, the U S Senate would seat Reed Smoot as um, a Senator, they were like, they were wondering, like, can we actually trust the Latter-day Saints? And then shortly afterward, we have all this con- conversation about the exact mm-hmm. nature of the church. So here's what it says on page, at least the way this is printed in the conference report, it's on page uh, nine, the, th- the third paragraph, and this is the conference report of uh, April 1907. And this is a pamphlet that's published at the end. 
of the conference report. Here's what it says. Oh, this is so beautiful. I'll start in the middle of the second paragraph here. The ecclesiastical government, the ecclesiastical government itself exists by the will of the people. Elections are frequent and the members are at liberty to vote as they choose. True, the elective principle here operates by popular acceptance rather than through popular selection, but it is nonetheless real. Where the, for, where the foregoing facts exist as to any system, it is not and cannot be arbitrary. And this is the this, this next paragraph I love. The church officers in the exercise of their functions, not just in their private lives, in the exercise of their official capacity, their teaching, proclamation, action, and policy, are answerable to the church. Let me read that whole sentence again because I added my words in there. The church officers right. in the exercises in the exercise of their functions are answerable to the church. No officer, however exalted his position, is exempt from this law. All decisions, rulings, and conduct of officials are subject to investigation, correction, revision, and final rejection by the general mm. assembly of the priesthood of the mm. church, its final court of appeal. Even the president, its highest officer, is subject to these laws, and special provision is made for his trial and, if necessary, his deposition. Where these facts exist in any administration of government, it cannot be justly classed as a tyranny, nor considered a menace to free institutions. All of our sources, our scriptures, our official, pro our official statements like this one, our DNC, uh, section 107 and section 121, are consistent that our church leaders are accountable, accountable to the people. Especially when you look at the concept of persuasion, the only authority they have is to persuade. They can't just say, oh, I've got the priesthood, you have to do what I say because I have this arbitrary authority. There is no arbitrary authority in the church. They are accountable to an outside, uh, uh, an outside, what is the word? Um, they're accountable to an outside authority, actually. Yeah, they're accountable to some other outside source of judging what's going on. Anyway, so I've talked a lot. Do you have thoughts? Because I'm going to have more thoughts. But you have any thoughts <laughs> right now? No, not about this. I don't want to interrupt this just yet. I don't think I have anything uh, substantial to add. Okay. So I'm going to go on and talk a little bit about um, this, this. I love this word arbitrary because yes, our leaders, I agree, are sent by God. Yes, our leaders have teaching authority, but that authority is not arbitrary. And arbitrary means like an absolute dictatorship where they can just do whatever they want and it becomes law like the pharaohs of Egypt, right? That's arbitrary authority. And so the mm -hmm. exact opposite of arbitrary is a accountable and justifiable, that they have to have a justifiable cause that they persuade is a, a basis for what it is that they're saying. If they don't have that, then they're trying to exercise arbitrary power that just because they felt like it or just because they said something or just they had a rumbling in their tummy that they think is a, a voice from God when it's actually just their biases seeping out of their pores 
that is not okay. Look at the, look at the paragraph on page eight right before it says, "We deny the existence of arbitrary power in the church, and this because its government is moral government purely, and its forces are applied through kindness, reason, and persuasion. Government by consent of the governed is the rule of the church." And then, then there, there's following a summary that basically sums up what section 121 talks about this, that uh, um, against unrighteous dominion, that there's no compulsion, that uh, any degree of unrighteousness, uh, amen to the priesthood of that individual, and that no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, etc., but I want to go back to this. Mm -hmm. uh, the fancy word for for all of you um, who want to sound like you're you're in tune with what's going on is polity. When we talk about church government, we typically use the word polity. Is how it, how are decisions made, and how is this a a democratic polity? Is it congregational? Is it a Presbyterian polity? Is it an Episcopal polity, uh, which is the rule by bishops? You know. So right. anyway, so our polity is that our forces are applied through kindness, reason, and persuasion. I just want to name, in the name of our beloved Jesus Christ, that the way our leaders have treated the LGBT population of the church is not through kindness, it's not through reason, and it's not through persuasion. I have not seen enough kindness, I have not seen any reason, right, for these things, and I have not been persuaded. So given what this statement is saying, I have the absolute right to, to name that, that the authority of the brethren is not arbitrary and it's not absolute. Um, let's see if there's something else I want to look at. Uh, while you're doing that, I just want to point to another witness to what you're saying that's in this very section. Um, verse 30, and... Uh, I guess to 32 or so, but I'll just read verse 30 for now. The decisions of these quorums or either of them are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness, and lowliness of heart, meekness, and longsuffering, and in faith, and in virtue, and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Now, this isn't the only place we see those, but I don't think it's coincidental mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we are seeing all these Christ-like attributes, these traits, these uh, necessary traits of ministry, of leadership, of missionary service. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing them again mm -hmm. in this whole revelation on the priesthood. Exactly. I think that it is here to remind us the actual, the source of the actual authority of these mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say, because the promise is, if these things abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the word mm -hmm. of the Lord, which I think is very interesting wording and something that deserves to be unpacked if we get the time. But also, it goes on to say further in verse 32, in the case that any decision of these quorums is made in unrighteousness, it may be brought before a general assembly of the several quorums which constitute the spiritual authorities of the church. Otherwise, there can be no mm -hmm. appeal from their mm -hmm. decisions. So there's, again, this little nod to, you know, accountability of the brethren, particularly if they're not operating under the, you know, under these particular traits. So I definitely think it's uh, worth having this conversation and also worth pointing to the part of section 107 that lends credence to this argument that you're making. 
Right. I, and I, here's the... Well, I have two points. One is out of compassion for our our leaders. And it's this. Like, if they only knew how much more powerful their influence would be if they held themselves out as accountable. Accountability fuels trust because then you know, okay, we can trust what is going on because if it had been wrong, there would be checks and balances in the way. Or we can trust them because they've thought through this from all angles and they've allowed criticism to have its due uh, course and, uh, and, and worked it out, right? If it's untested, if it's uncriticized, if it's untried, if it's, if it's not gone through the refiner's fire of accountability, you can't test it. I mean, you can't trust it because it's not been, mm-hmm. it's not been tried. It's not been, been refined. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's what I would say is if they want to be believed instead of saying, well, you got to believe us, we're, we're, we're set here by God. Uh, and yeah, they are set here by God. And I want to uh, give a, another pro tip to our people who are budding theologians out there. It's <laughs> this. It has to do with what do you do when the rules of the game are stacked against you? that it's set up unfairly, that the lines on the field are drawn unfairly. What do you do? Do you just get really good at the game and play the same game that's rigged against you and just try to beat them on their own terms? The answer is no. What you need to do is redraw the lines on your own terms and play your own game, and that is one way of making progress. And here I'm going to give an example of redrawing the lines for people, okay? I'm about to say, what does that look like in our context? Okay. So here's one of the things that people talk about. People have a conversation about infallibility, right? But almost right. everyone in the church will admit, at least in principle, that our leaders are not infallible. They will admit in theory that they can make mistakes and that they have made mistakes. And apologists will say that our dead prophets have made a lot of mistakes because that's the only way they can Mm -hmm. do their apologetics. It Mm -hmm. is culturally Mm -hmm. um, not as popular to critique living prophets, but almost everyone, no matter how conservative they are in the church, will not find the sources to back up an absolute infallibility of our leaders. So if we make the argument about infallibility, we won't get anywhere, right? Because because that's not the thing that's being really being talked about. We should pivot away from the conversation about infallibility because we already know they're not infallible. Uh-huh. We should pivot away from infallibility and instead talking about accountability because that's where we disagree. There's a wing of the church that refuses to hold the brethren accountable even though they accept, in principle, that they make mistakes, and they they do make mistakes, Mm -hmm. and those mistakes get corrected. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this multiple times in the five years that I've been a member of the church where they've done this thing, and then they're like, oops, we messed up. Or they they don't say it that way, but like the November 2015 policy. Right? right, they they messed up, and then they they changed it, or but they didn't say they messed up. 
Right. They didn't say they messed up. Right. And I think that's because we don't let them say. Like, this is the, the tail wagging the dog. We don't let our leaders be human. We don't let them. We've put them on a pedestal, and a pedestal is a prison because they're not free hmm. to actually be themselves and say, you know what? I messed up. Let's let's do something better. We've, we've harmed the brethren. Is a prison. We've harmed the brethren by not letting them say they can mess up. I mean, that that's 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 torture to, to put people yeah. in such an awful, awful position. Like, I'm the one that's actually supporting and sustaining the brethren here. I want them to have good lives. I want them to have respect. I want them to have the freedom to actually do stuff. It's the pedestal of our culture that has messed it all. But anyway, so let's go back to the lines that I'm redrawing. <laughs> Yeah. So in, we've got to pivot away from this theoretical conversation about infallibility, which we're not going to win because they already concede something, but they don't get the impact of it. We need to pivot from the infallibility conversation to the accountability conversation and say, look, these leaders are hurting us. What do we do about that? And that's a conversation that we want to have. Okay. Yes, sir. And so here's another way of redrawing the lines. I want to I want to share an argument uh, that I don't think anyone has articulated this quite clearly, and it's a response to this idea culturally that we have to believe everything that the leaders say, that anything that's said over the pulpit or anything that's written or anything a general authority says, like somehow it's binding on us, somehow it mm -hmm. has weight, and somehow it's beyond criticism. And let me just mm -hmm. demolish that argument. And here's how I'm going to demolish that argument. I'm going to draw the lines a little bit differently. Instead of looking at all of the texts where leaders um, do make mistakes, right? We've, we've gone through those. I'm going to, to pull out a wild card from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and talk about God being a God of order. And here's a good proof mm -hmm. by contradiction. So uh, it can't be the case that we are expected to believe everything that every leader says on every occasion. I know some people try to do that and they, they act like we are. But mm -hmm. if you actually tried that, it would lead to disorder. Can you think about Just think about it. Think about everything that was said in conference over the past 10 years. Like that would be such disorder. If you had to believe every private opinion that every leader ever said on any occasion that is disorder because you don't know which one to go with. You don't know. Uh, they conflict with each other. They change over time. We've gotten whiplash from all sorts of different things where they say one thing and then they say another thing. And then, you know, two weeks later they change it. Mm -hmm. And the solution to finding order is to realize, you know what, we're above that. We don't have to believe everything that they say. We don't have to. They don't have arbitrary power. They are not tyrants. They are not dictators. They are fellow servants like us. They are humans like us. And so, basically, if we did have to believe everything they said, it would lead to disorder. But God is not a God of disorder. Ergo, we don't have to believe everything that comes from the mouth of someone who happens to have this office. And let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to read, mm -hmm. okay, a lot of people know 33. Oh, let's go back to my entire principle of, well, not my, but one of my most important principles of biblical exegesis is to know where the verse is situated in its paragraph, in its letter, 
and see how is it functioning in that context, and you get so much more out of it. Let's look at verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. I'm reading from a modern translation. But let's go back, verse 29, and look at the paragraph. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Let me pause and say, look what it says. It says, if prophets speak, others should weigh what they're saying. Okay, verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Can I get an amen on that? Amen, sir. Yes. In context, this whole business about God being a God of, not being a God of disorder is about prophecy and revelation. And it is about accountability. It is about weighing carefully what the prophets are saying. So it is absolutely mm -hmm. part of Paul's point towards the division that was going on in Corinth to say, hey, you know what? We don't have to believe everything every prophet says. We have to weigh it in the community, see what's encouraging, because God is a God of order, not a God mm -hmm. of disorder. And I think to make us believe everything that every leader says is a cultural nightmare, and it's, it's making God out to be a God of disorder. So this is basically how I'm redrawing the lines and playing a completely different right. game than they want me to play, because I might not win that game, because I don't have the authority in the church. I don't have the teaching authority that the brethren have. So if I try to play the game of who's got the stronger revelation or who's got the calling or who's got the whatever, I'm not playing that game because the New Testament rises above that game. I just feel like what you said is beautiful and a, a great point of focus, a great little locus for us uh, uh, in, in 107 for this episode. But the only thing mm -hmm. I was thinking of, the, or like one of the other things that stood out to me in this section was, uh, you know, the very last verses, section, or sorry, verse mm -hmm. uh, 99 and 100. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty and to act in mm -hmm. the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. Mm -hmm. He that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand, and he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy mm -hmm. to stand mm -hmm. even so amen now these verses uh like i'll just like this whole revelation actually came at a time where um basically what's happening in america is basically what white america says is happening to black families mm -hmm. all over the country um there's there's fatherhood problems you know what i'm saying there's like this erosion of fatherly responsibility and fatherhood, generally speaking. What I've noticed is that these verses mm. and a lot of this language that surrounds this cultural understanding of, you know, this conflation of priesthood and fatherhood, it comes from these verses. 107's uh, priesthood principles have, uh, they have a powerful influence on many men at this time, including Joseph's father. And uh, Richard Bushman uh, went as far as to say in one of his writings, I think it was uh, uh, Joseph Smith, Roughstone Rolling, uh, that whole thing, popular book, mm -hmm. uh, 
only one I've touched of Bushman, I think. But basically, in that section, it strongly implies that in restoring the priesthood, Joseph restored fatherhood. And that's how we get so many of these uh, people out here conflating fatherhood and priesthood because we have inexplicably tied the two together. And therefore, we, we have all these conversations and say these things like, oh, men have priesthood, women have motherhood. Or, if, or things like if the, men have, if the men don't have priesthood or if the, if the men don't have priesthood, then we don't really have any value. Or if the women get the priesthood as well, men don't really have the value. And to that I say, first of all, exactly. That's kind of the point. But also I say, if your only value as a man or as a father is tied to this authority, which we don't always righteously wield, and in fact sometimes swing around as if it's like, you know, the end-all be-all, then that's kind of a problem. Uh, you've already alluded, I mean, you've straight up said it, but like this kind of view of the priesthood is harmful, not just to, uh, you know, the women in this church, mm-hmm, but also mm-hmm. the men. This like really restricts us, and it, I mean, you call it, you said it yourself, the pedestal is the prison. And um, it restricts a lot of growth for men, for fathers, and it also prevents um, it prevents us from viewing priesthood through its proper lens. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe these uh, verses to be true or to uh, have value in their particular context. I just think that oftentimes we take these verses out of their context to basically ascribe a value or a... Uh, meaning to fatherhood that doesn't actually exist. Now, that's not to say that priesthood can't be a part of fatherhood, but to like basically conflate the two to be the same thing is uh, is a bit is quite a misnomer. What's really, uh, as a theologian, I just want to caution against people doing armchair speculative theology because there's so many ways that you can get it wrong that one day a revelation will blow your apologetic nonsense out of the water. For example, you know how all the people tried to justify the discrimination of black folks in the church? They had all these intricate theories. All too well. It's the same thing here. If you ever ask the question, why does God want women to not have the priesthood? Every answer to that question will be wrong. Every answer mm-hmm. to that question, because there's a wrong assumption in there that all are, are not alike to God. In Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, right? And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you start with the assumption that God is the one that's behind the discrimination and you come up with all sorts of theories and hypotheses, all of those will be wrong. So you get mm-hmm. these theories that, oh, men that need the priesthood because otherwise they would sit and not do anything if they didn't have responsibility. Oh, God, that is just awful. God help us, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's, it, it's, it's derogatory towards men, and it's derogatory towards women because it's saying women need to sacrifice their mm-hmm. best f- flourishing and their mm-hmm. actualization of everything God has blessed them with that women are so inferior in priority that we can sacrifice their well-being and their ability to contribute for the benefit of these men. I mean, like, no, that's that's bad for men, that's bad mm-hmm. for women, that's bad for everything. Patriarchy is bad for everyone, except for a very everyone. few high-status males that, that make it work. 
and a few women that cooperate with the patriarchy. But other than mm-hmm. that, most people, patriarchy is real bad. It's it's bad for all mm-hmm. of us. And so it's I terrible. just wish we would stop marrying the priesthood to a patriarchal understanding of God. And I probably should not ramble on mm. this too much more. <laughs> we'll have plenty of times to talk about priesthood and gender later. Did we finish everything we wanted to say in less well, than an hour? No, I still have more to say because I just want to tie this back. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tie this yeah, back but... into verse 84 because you know how I did my detour into First Corinthians 14. It ties it yes, back right in here. The Spirit ties it back because this is verse 81 through 84 that says no one is exempt from the council of the church and if anyone uh, shall transgress, they're going to be... Uh, accountable to the common council of the church. And verse 84 Mm -hmm. says, thus none shall be exempted from the justice and the laws of God, that all things may be done in order and solemnity and in solemnity before him, according to truth and righteousness. So even here it says that the reason we have accountability is because of order. If there is no accountability, there is no order. And I love accountability. I've messed up and I've had listeners say, you know what, Derek, you messed up and you didn't actually do this right. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm absolutely willing to be accountable. I know that accountability fuels trust. Vulnerability fuels yeah. trust. And I'm, I just feel so sad that we've pedestalized our leaders and not given them a fair deal. And, and ped- we've put men on pedestals, we've put women on pedestals, we've just messed up everything culturally. And it's not even in our sources. Like, there's no source in Latter-day Revelation that actually denies, as far as I know, that, that explicitly says that women should not have the priesthood. There's none. Like, this, this isn't even in our sources. God is not a respecter of persons, and those who are trying to discriminate against any, or to arbitrarily, there's go back to arbitrary, anyone who's arbitrarily discriminating against a group of people for no reason, out of their whim, with no persuasion, they are um, making God in their own image, in their own discriminatory image. They're making God out to be a god of disorder, a god of discrimination, and I just can't uh, allow that to happen in the church that I love so much. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, so I guess now I'm done. I'm getting tired, and so... <laughs> that is valid. That is valid. It's a little bit later on our end. Uh, thank you very much for making this work, by the way. Um, uh-huh. I was at the hair salon today. I'd scheduled this oh, before wow. I... Yeah. You, should, you should post so a I got picture some, of your of your new hair. Well, I'm going back to uh, the barbershop tomorrow because I always I usually get my hair retwisted before I get it cut. So once I get it like cut nice and fresh, now that my barber knows where to cut, I will definitely send you a picture of it. Oh, good. Uh, okay, good. Yes. I, I will look forward to this picture. I just love having a clean scalp and freshly twisted hair. So thank you for being so accommodating. I do appreciate that. 
But anyway, before we go ahead and wrap up, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner that we want to put you on to called The Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious, or religious but not spiritual, or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us at Twitter and Instagram at btblds. And... Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't remember now. Did, what am I missing? Did I say events? Events. Um, I think I already covered the events. Oh, that's right. Uh, the thing. Well, as of this recording, you have your panel tomorrow, and uh, the final book club. Right. The final book club will be on Monday, September twentieth. Yes, and we covered that. So, all right, we got everything out the way. I think in terms of events, is there anything else we got to put the people on? Uh, nope. General conference is coming up in a few weeks, so let's prepare for that. Um, Absolutely. Our friends at the Faithful Feminist, they also put together a general conference a care package of some kind, um, just something to help people get ready uh-huh. for and potentially deal with general conference. I thought that was a brilliant idea. So um, I don't know if they're going to be doing that again this year or referring to it, but, you know, I'm I'm certainly going to be on the lookout for it because that is a very useful tool. Mm-hmm. 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 You know. Anyway, if that's yeah, go ahead. This is going to be weird. Maybe it's because I'm tired, but I have an appeal to our listeners. We have a lot of listeners, and all of our listeners know people. And you probably know people who know people, right? You know someone who knows someone who has some standing in the church. You know someone who has some access to the brethren. And I want to be careful not to play into the game that I says I don't want to play, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to go beg the brethren until I'm accepted. I'm already accepted, girl. Like, <laughs> Yes, sir. I'm fine. Like, like, it's not like I need to beg to be let into their little club. What I want to say is when are they going to wake up and join in what God is already doing among queer people? We're where it's at. And they're the ones that need to decide for themselves if they're going to include themselves in what God is doing among us. And so I just hope that some of our message will trickle over to the leaders of this church who can do something about those things. Um, I know some of you are the wives of, uh, of church leaders. Some of you know someone. Some of you have cousins that's a general authority, right? And so if there's any possible influence that you can have to help bear our burdens, then let it be so. On that note, thank you everybody for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, thank you. Bye everyone. <laughs>